while it's true that not all expression is created equal and the courts have said this historically the courts have focused much more on the type of expression what is the what is generally the the sort of thing you are doing with the expression are you pursuing truth are you um, making a political comment etc versus the specific content of the expression welcome back to runnymede radio i'm christopher kinsinger on today's episode of the podcast i sit down with asher honickman to discuss recent changes in the law of defamation including the supreme court of canada's decision earlier this year in hansman and newfeld Asher is a partner with Jordan Honickman Barristers in Toronto, the president of Advocates for the Rule of Law, and a co-founder and advisor of the Runnymede Society. Asher, welcome to Runnymede Radio. Great to be here, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk a little bit about defamation law and the Supreme Court's recent ruling in Hansman and Newfeld. But before we dive in, you're obviously someone who has been around since the very beginning of, uh, of the Runnymede Society. So can you maybe, you know, take a couple of minutes and just walk us through what your involvement in Runnymede has been and why Runnymede matters to you and, and why you think Canada needs an organization like this? Sure. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to sum it up in just a couple of minutes, but basically, uh, so so I was there at the beginning in in 2015, uh, Marnie Supkoff and I uh, were talking about how we need a, uh, a legal organization that is based on campuses to really uh, push back against what we saw as a certain kind of orthodoxy in our law. Uh, we wanted more debates in general on, on these issues, but also just seeing that uh, certain certain views of law and and in particular a very results oriented view where we're taking hold in both academia and and in uh, the case law to an extent i had started advocates for the rule of law the year before and we thought well let's have a separate group that is going to uh, really be focused you know in law school campuses and we hired uh, Joanna Barron soon after. We, well, first we came up with the name, the Runnymede Society. Here's what it's going to do. We found Joanna uh, and she took the reins right away and and took off. And, and after that, you know, my involvement has been, I, I think, sort of uh, on more of an advisory level. Um, I, I hope that's how I'm seen. I, I think, you know, you and I, since you took over, I, I've I've spoken with you a lot about running meet initiatives, the same with Mark before you, the same with uh, Joanna before him. So I, you know, I enjoy that level of involvement and it's nice because I, I'm obviously very busy with my practice, but I, I try very hard to keep, you know, one foot in uh, the running meet pond, so to speak. And uh, it's very important to me um, because I think running meet makes a difference because the rule of law is is so important. It is one of the foundational pillars of our entire country. And I believe not that running meet, you know, has saved the rule of law by any stretch, but mm. I believe that running meets initiatives have put a renewed focus on, on the rule of law. And it, it has made everyone in, in our in our world from judges to lawyers to academics uh, think about the rule of law, I think a bit more than they otherwise would. 
And, you know, whether that is on, oh, goodness, like the issue of the notwithstanding clause, whether that's on the issue of constitutional interpretation, whether it's on the issue of defamation, as we're going to talk about today, um, our constitution, our legal order, the rule of law more broadly is just so essential. And it's so essential to have discussions and debates about different views on these things. And I think that's where the Running Meat Society has contributed so much. It's allowed all sides of various issues to sharpen their positions. And I think we've really got to the nub of some important issues, uh, as you know. And we'll be doing that again, uh, primarily uh, in February at the next uh, national conference. Well, and, and as you say, these are uh, principles. When we think about the rule of law as this foundational organizing sacrosanct principle of our legal order, it's one that we can bring to bear not only on these constitutional questions where it often arises, uh, but also in these other settings, including these private law settings, which is why we were so keen to have you on the podcast uh, to talk about this issue of defamation law and to see, to think about some of the changes uh, to this area of law over the past few years and in the Supreme Court's recent ruling in Hansman and Newfeld. So why don't we delve in? And our focus today is on recent changes within the law uh, of defamation. Uh, but before we kind of get into that, I, I want to take a step back because you're a litigator and you devote a considerable portion of your practice to defamation cases. But uh, you're also, as we've just discussed, someone who cares deeply about how the rule of law informs legal interpretation. So what specifically draws you to this area of defamation law? Right. Well, you know, just to go back for a second to something you said uh, about how important the rule of law is to private law cases. Um, the day-to-day -day functioning of our justice system is mostly private law cases. If you walk into, uh, if, if you've got nothing better to do and you want to go to court, uh, walk into 393 University, take a look at the docket. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the civil, the civil uh, courthouse. Most of the cases there are going to be um, personal injury cases. There'll be some contract cases there. Uh, you know, you go you go to the criminal court. Obviously, that there's a whole other criminal system. But the the point is that most of our of our legal system is based around either criminal law or what we might call private law, um, which you know, civil law, private law. In other words, law that that implicates uh, the rights between individuals in contract, property, and torts. And so the rule of law, we, it's not just about the constitution. It's mm -hmm. about the, the rule of law is very much about how our system functions day to day. And so what one of the what, one of the things that I especially love about defamation in particular is about how technical of an area it is. Uh, it's not, uh, and I'm not suggesting that other areas of law are, but it's not wishy-washy. It, it's really about precise rules. You know, when has there been defamation? What are the defenses that apply? Uh, the Supreme Court has said, for example, that in defamation law, uh, the pleadings matter more than in other areas of law. Mm. They've said that many times. And, and the reason is that precision in defamation law matters so much. And, and I think that high level of technicality as someone who cares about rules really does uh, appeal to me. Uh, but the second thing is that it's a great bridge uh, between 
what you may call ordinary private law and what you might call uh, the constitutional issues, uh, you know, what, what some might call the sexy issues, freedom of speech, et cetera. Um, because fundamentally, defamation law is about limits on freedom of expression. And uh, inherent in defamation law is, is really a, a, an, an overarching theory about uh, what those limits are and what they ought to be in a free and democratic society. And, and it recognizes, you know, the same way that you would say there's no right to yell fire in a crowded theater, there's no right to destroy someone else's reputation. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but on the other hand, and, and we'll get into this balance, you know, freedom of expression is sacrosanct. And while, uh, you know, while the charter doesn't apply to private law per se, uh, the case law is pretty clear that defamation law has to be developed in a manner consistent uh, with freedom of expression and the charter. So it's, it's, it's really about those two big issues for me. On, on the one hand, it's, it's the, the great, the highly technical nature of it. And on the other hand, it's how it interplays with, with freedom of expression and the limits upon that. And I would say the third thing is that in our uh, internet age, we're seeing that reputations can be destroyed so easily and and the reputations uh, really matter more than ever. Like, you know, in, in past ages, you, you hear about these stories of, you know, the guy who kind of leaves town and picks up and goes to another town and changes his name. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, halfway through the movie, people learn that, you know, Jim Smith is actually Bob Jones from Kentucky or something like that. You know, those days are long gone. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it happens once in a while still, but basically, you know, if someone defames you and if they defame you online, especially that can follow you for the rest of your life. And, and so, you know, that in and of itself, I think has brought defamation law uh, to really to the forefront in the last few years. And there's been some interesting developments there. And, and to that point, you um, you've represented clients on both sides of defamation claims. You've represented people who have been defamed, but you've also uh, defended people against uh, these these allegations of defamation. Yeah, that's right. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm not the only defamation lawyer that does that. Some, some defamation lawyers do tend to represent either plaintiffs or defendants. Um, and, and that's also true, by the way, across other areas of law. Um, you know, that's very true in personal injury, for example. People tend to either represent injured people or insurance companies. In, in my experience, you're you're a better uh, you're a better advocate for plaintiffs, let's say, if you also represent defendants and and vice versa. I think if you only represent, let's say, uh, plaintiffs, meaning people who are alleging their reputations have been defamed, you're going to take, I think, after after time, even if you don't intend this, you will tend to take an overly expansive view of when defamation has occurred, when someone's reputation has been harmed, et cetera, it can tend to produce a sort of tunnel vision. And I think we need to guard against that. And, and similarly, if you're always on for defendants, I think you may start to take uh, a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a 
let's say, non-compassionate view towards mm. reputations and the damage uh, that online defamation can cause to reputations. And so I think it's important uh, for all advocates that they take on cases from both sides. I realize some can't, you know, if, if you, um, if, if you are, you know, employed by a media company, let's say you're, you're always going to be on the side, almost always, you'll almost always be on the side of the defendant. You know, the media outlet will get sued for defamation. You'll be defending mm -hmm. them. I understand that I'm not, you know, saying people shouldn't do that work. Of course, what I am saying is that when you act for both sides, I do believe it enhances your capabilities as an advocate because you see the other side and and you anticipate also the arguments that opposing counsel is going to make and you can uh, develop strategies to address those arguments in advance before they're even made. One of the tools that we've seen emerge within defamation uh, claims, and this has implications for whether you're representing the plaintiff or the defendant, are uh, the, the concept of what we call these strategic lawsuits against public participation. And the acronym, as you will know, is they're often referred to as uh, slap cases. And so many of our listeners will know that in recent years, we've seen a number of anti-slap laws be passed in provinces like British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. And, and they're intended to discourage this sort of litigation, this sort of strategic lawsuits against public participation. So in terms of civil procedure, how do these laws operate? What are the sort of questions that courts are asking when an anti-slap motion is brought? Well, why don't we start with who brings an anti-slap motion? Right. So, yeah, it, it's it's a bit technically complicated, so I'll, I'll try and explain it this way. Um, so, first of all, your listeners may know, generally speaking, what a motion is. A motion is a proceeding, uh, a, a hearing that occurs within a proceeding. So it's it's almost like a mini trial on a particular issue, but it's not it's not a trial. So you can bring a motion to compel document production. You can bring a motion for what's called summary judgment. You can bring a motion to dismiss a claim at the outset because it discloses no reasonable cause of action. You can bring a motion to inspect property. There's so many motions one can bring. So some years back, about a decade ago, uh, Ontario amended the Courts of Justice Act to add a new motion. And as you say, it's, it's a, uh, effectively called an anti-slap motion. This is a motion that's meant to be brought at or near the outset of the proceeding Sometimes the parties, the defense hasn't even put in their statement of defense yet, mm -hmm. uh, and it's brought by the defendant, and it's it's a threshold motion that basically says, we don't need to go to trial because this claim is effectively what we call a slap, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Now, the uh, the operative section of the Courts of Justice Act doesn't actually refer to slap. It has a test uh, for when a case gets thrown out at, at this early stage. And we'll, we can talk about the difference between that and what you may call uh, a slap. But uh, essentially, yeah, it's a motion that a defendant brings at the outset. And if it is granted, the lawsuit, uh, the lawsuit is uh, dismissed at this early stage. If the slap motion, if the anti-slap motion fails, then all that happens is the case goes on to trial. Right. Uh, it doesn't It doesn't mean that the plaintiff wins. It just means that the plaintiff doesn't lose at this early stage. 
So for that reason, it's best to think of, of this motion as a sort of screening mechanism uh, to keep out claims from going to trial uh, that are viewed as strategic lawsuits. Right. And when you say strategic lawsuits, you're meaning uh, a lawsuit that's essentially designed to shut someone up, um, to, right. to, to discourage them from uh, engaging in legitimate public discourse uh, by by having these, these threats of defamation um, brought against them. That's so, right. Yeah, go. Well, I was just going to say that that's exactly right. That the classic slap suit historically is is the big company suing the whistleblower employee. The right. employee who comes forward and says, "I work or I worked at X Corp," and you know, let let's call it. We like, can't you know, we can't say X Corp anymore. You're going to have to change it. To something oh, that's else. true. That's true. X is a corp. okay. So <laughs> we yeah. don't want you to get uh, sued for defamation. After that's this. right. Oh my God, uh, good point. See, this is this is why you're a good lawyer, Chris. But um, <laughs> yeah, so so I I work. We'll say we'll say at uh, you know X Y Z Corp, and uh, you know they make coffee and um you don't know this but they've been they've been putting this ingredient in all their coffees to make it more addictive and the ingredient is also hazardous to your health and xyz corp or i guess in canada xyz corp turns around and and sues this employee and says how dare you you know we don't do any of these we don't do any of these things you've defamed us and so what the anti slap provisions do is they allow this employee who's probably not very well resourced to bring a motion at the outset, and what it what uh, the law allows in Ontario is if they win the motion, not only do they get their costs, they get a hundred percent of their costs, or or near a hundred percent of their costs. And so the idea is that David can mm -hmm. can uh, resist the lawsuit by Goliath, and David can be indemnified for having uh, been put through the ringer, essentially. Yeah. And so part of the analysis that would take place during that anti-slap motion, it involves a weighing of the defamatory harm suffered to the plaintiff's reputation against the public interest in protecting the defendant's free expression. So we're circling back here to kind of, you know, the interesting aspects of defamation law that you talked about at the outset of our conversation. Do you think there are any potential pitfalls in undertaking this kind of analysis and trying to weigh defamatory harm against uh, the public interest of free expression? Yes, I, I think, <laughs> so I'm, I, I wanna be charitable here, but I do think that that sort of analysis is inherently fraught because you are, the, the Ontario legislature has asked judges to weigh two unlike things. Mm -hmm. They've essentially, uh, they've essentially said to judges, tell us, you know, whether apples or oranges are tastier, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's very tough to measure the public interest on the one hand in allowing a claim to proceed and the public interest on the other hand in, in protecting the expression. That's, that's very difficult. And yet, in practice, that is where most of the of the anti-slap motions get decided and it's it's interesting because uh on on its face obviously this has nothing to do with section one of the charter but it is similar to section one of the charter in the sense that so much of that analysis takes place 
at the proportionality stage where you say, well, mm -hmm. how are judges supposed to, to balance, you know, the salutary versus deleterious effects of a law? We sort of have the same thing in anti-slap where a lot of the cases proceed through the various steps of the analysis and then they get to the final step and it's just a weighing stage. Uh, if, if I were if I were the legislature, I would probably rework that law so that most cases don't even get to the weighing stage, um, or perhaps perhaps the weighing stage has to go entirely. I, I, I would probably need to think about that a bit more. Um, but it's also because of how certain terms in that test have been interpreted by the courts that invariably, almost invariably, the issue comes to the weighing stage. Um, and, and specifically how the courts have interpreted public interest. Uh, right. they've, they've given it such a broad interpretation um, because the first branch of the test basically says, is this a matter of public, is this case a matter of public interest? And unlike some other countries where public interest, that term has been given a narrow application, our courts have said public interest is a very broad term. And so because of that, uh, almost every case gets into the regime uh, and, and then, so, you know, it goes to the second step, we can talk about that. And then most of those cases then go to this third step, this, this balancing or weighing stage rather. And so uh, because of that, there's a bit of unpredictability and, uh, you know, there's definitely judicial discretion in terms of what cases will proceed to trial versus what cases will be uh, dismissed at this early stage. Right. And one such case where we saw these things that you're talking about, where we saw the difficulty of taking these different considerations and weighing them in a balancing exercise was earlier this year in the Supreme Court of Canada's ruling in Hansman and Neufeld. So why don't we kind of pivot and start to talk about that? And so just by way of background, uh, for the sake of our listeners, so they're aware of what this case was about, the plaintiff was a British Columbia school trustee who had made several online comments criticizing provincial public school curriculum regarding sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, something that's very much uh, being discussed a lot these days. And in response to these posts, the defendant, who was a, a gay teacher and a former uh, teachers union leader, accused the plaintiff of making hateful, bigoted, and transphobic comments that undermine the safety of LGBTQ students in the schools. So when the plaintiff uh, sued the defendant for defamation, the defendant brought an anti-slap motion. And and I want to get to Justice Cote's dissent, but before we do, why don't we start with Justice Karakasanis uh, and her reasons from the majority. And she noted that the anti-slap balancing exercise does look to Section 2B of the Charter, which obviously guarantees uh, freedom of expression and, and the values that underpin that guarantee. But she also held, interestingly, that Section 15 equality considerations can inform the analysis in an anti-slap motion. And this is what she wrote, quote, as our constitution recognizes, not all expression is created equal and the level of protection to be afforded to any particular expression can vary widely according to the quality of the expression, its subject matter, the motivation behind it, or the forum through which it was expressed. The closer the expression lies to the core values of Section 2B, including truth-seeking, participation in political decision-making, and diversity in the forms of self-fulfillment and human flourishing, the greater the public interest in protecting it, end quote. So what's your general reaction when you think about 
we were talking about how we can bring these kind of principles of the rule of law and constitutionalism to bear in private law disputes. So when it comes to doing that, when we're thinking about applying constitutional principles to private disputes, what's your response here to this passage and to the way that Justice Karakasanis proposes we do so? Well, I think it, I think it's actually quite problematic to be candid. Um, look, freedom of expression is not a neutral principle. It, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the courts have long acknowledged that it rests on certain fundamental principles. But these are basic principles that are at the very core of our entire legal system. One such principle you mentioned: the pursuit of truth. Um, you know, holding political actors to account and, and you know, generally political expression, the, the idea that, um, that the idea that we want to arrive at the best political system, the best uh, political policy, all these things, 100 percent, that's that's not a neutral idea, but it is so uh, ingrained in the fabric of our system. As soon as you move away from those those basic ideas uh, to more specific principles, um, you know, to say that, um, you know, even if it's things that most people would agree with, or almost all people would agree with, say that you know, fighting racism is a good thing. Uh, as soon as you you move into that specific idea, you open up the door to all sorts of other specific mm -hmm. ideas. Um, which may or may not be popular at any given point in time. And so while, while it's true that not all expression is created equal, and the courts have said this, historically, the courts have focused much more on the type of expression. What is, the, what is generally the, the sort of thing you are doing with the expression? Are you pursuing truth? Are you um, making a political comment, et cetera, versus the specific content of the expression? And the courts have drawn a line between, uh, you know, the, the sort of general quality, which, which is not a neutral idea, versus the specific content, which courts have been historically neutral towards. And I would respectfully submit that enhancement, we're getting away from that historic principle, and we're now looking at the content of the expression in a non-neutral way. And we're saying expression that does X, Y, Z, uh, you know, in this case, expression that uh, advocates on behalf of marginalized groups, let's say, is more deserving of protection than expression that, you know, does something else. Now, that's not to say this wasn't valuable expression. And, and, and we can talk about this because, I, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with the majority uh, decision and a lot of what they say, but there's a difference between saying this is valuable expression because one, it's holding a public actor to account, publicly elected, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a, a trustee. That's not okay. It's not an MP, but that's a public position. You're holding that person to account. That's a core value of freedom of expression, regardless of what you say, regardless of what the issue is. That's a core value. Uh, you know, secondly, that the issue of gender and gender identity and all these issues are in the public interest. They are things that people are debating and are trying to get at, at the truth of. 
so I think it's it's completely fair game to say that the public interest in those comments was high, but I disagree that the reason the public interest is high is because of the content of the speech. In other words, if the roles had been reversed and Mr. Newfeld had said, I'm concerned at the amount of, of let's say, um, you know, anti-trans or traditional marriage concepts uh, in our curriculum. You know, our schools are teaching traditional marriage. Uh, they're teaching, you know, heterosexual relationships are preferred. And, and if Mr. Hansman had instead, um, you know, called Mr. Newfeld hateful or bigoted as against Christians, let's say, as against uh, traditionalists, let's say, the analysis should be exactly the same. In other words, you would say the key factors there are that one, Newfeld is a trustee. Two, the debate is about you know what should be taught in schools, gender, sexuality, et cetera. These are all uh, matters of extreme public interest. It doesn't matter what side of the debate the person's on. It matters if they uh, said something that would injure that person's reputation. And it matters if uh, you know this is a matter of public interest. That's all that matters. And I think yeah. the court, the court could have done the analysis much more from that perspective without getting into the into the specifics of the expression. So on that point, potentially muddying the waters a bit, and and I'm curious for your thoughts on this, uh, muddying the waters between the form of speech and the content of speech is this idea of counter speech, which Justice Karakasanis also draws on in her reasons, and she contends that counter speech especially when it's exercised by members of marginalized groups, is consistent with the values that reinforce both sections 2B and 15. Uh, do you agree with this approach? Do you think that we should be inserting ideas like counter speech into the analysis, or does that get us further away from the, the more uh, objective approach that you prefer? No, I, I think the concept of counter speech is, is fine if we understand it with a little more precision. Um, and I think, first of all, I think Justice Cote talks about this, that you know, not all counter speech is created equal, uh, just as not all speech is created. So if we're looking at, at counter speech, um, I think that one of the key analysis, analysis points is, is the purpose of the speech that same kind of idea, truth-seeking, uh, political discourse, etc. I think in many cases it will be. And so if the point is that counter speech will often enjoy protection because it tends to engage the core values of freedom of expression, I think a statement like that is fine because that's probably true. Probably mm -hmm. in most cases, you know, counter speech, the idea is that, well, someone else is talking, so I'm responding to them by that very fact, we're in a debate. And, and, and that is something you want to protect generally, debate. On the other hand, you know, if someone, you know, if you take extreme, an, an extreme view of things or extreme example, rather, if someone says, this is my position on, you know, this policy matter, and someone responds, well, you're a murderer, um, the, they can't say, well, I was engaging in counter speech. To me, that's, that's nonsensical. And in fact, you know, I take Justice Cote's point in that case, they're shutting down the debate. 
They're trying to get that person to, to stop speaking. So yeah, counter speech can be relevant. It, I, I think you need to look at it in the precise context and say, was this truly an example of, of uh, counter speech? You know, was this essentially the marketplace of ideas or was right. this someone trying to um, destroy someone else's reputation? Uh, I think it can also be relevant when you're looking at a, uh, at a fair comment defense. Mm -hmm. um, counter speech can be very relevant there because you could be, you know, a, a fair comment defense is all about looking at, well, what are, what are the underlying facts? Like, are there facts that this comment of yours was based on? Well, if someone has spoken and you've mm -hmm. got their record of what they said, um, that, that's a nice, clean, factual record. And I think oftentimes counter speech will just be defeated, um, uh, you know, under the defense of fair comment because of that. And, and I think there's good... Uh, there's a good policy reason to say that. So, and and that's even if this counter speech is a bit insulting, you know, it, it, to sort of characterize someone else's speech as bigoted or hateful, uh, it strikes me that that will often be fair comment. Yeah. Um, we can talk about that, but. Yeah, so let's, that's a good way to transition into Justice Cote's dissent, because I know you you wanted to talk about it. And we're, we're talking about Justice Caracasana. So let's talk about Justice Cote, who held that allegations of hate speech are tantamount to allegations of a criminal offense or conduct uh, potentially meriting a human rights complaint. And therefore, such allegations rank highly in terms of harm to an individual's reputation. And so on this point, Justice Cote also held that a plaintiff does not need to be silenced in order to suffer harm to their reputation. Uh, in her view, the free expression considerations required of an anti-slap analysis are content neutral and she criticized the majority's invocation of equality values in its public interest analysis. So, you know, you've already been kind of like steering toward the ways in which you agree to just uh, with Justice Cote and elements of her dissent. So what's your general response to the way she would have approached this framework? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say I entirely agree with her. I, I, I do agree <clears throat> generally that if you're accusing someone of a crime, uh, that you know, and this goes back to the point about harm, that that will presume harm for sure. Mm -hmm. Like if someone accuses someone of having committed a criminal code offense, they should not have to tender evidence about everyone who now hates them and thinks they're a criminal. Right. That is why in defamation law, damages are presumed, harm is presumed by the very fact of publication. It's a very serious allegation to make. Whether in this case, Mr. Hansman was accusing Mr. Newfeld of a criminal offense. I'm not sure about. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't think we have to be sure about it. And this goes back to the very idea, what are we here to do? What is an anti-slap motion? An anti-slap motion is a screening motion. Mm -hmm. And Justice Cote, in my view, didn't have to go as far as she did. She didn't have to say, this is what um, Hansman is accusing Newfeld of doing. Really, all she needs to say is uh, there's there's grounds to believe that this is what Hansman is accusing Newfeld of, and I think that's right. true. There's grounds to believe. There's a basis in law and in fact to say that what Hansman is saying, at least in in a couple of the comments, is Mr. Newfeld, you have breached uh, the criminal code. You're guilty of hate speech. And again, I I think courts looking at anti-slap motions need to always keep in mind that they are not the trial judge. 
And, and we, we see almost no reference to that in this decision, either from the majority or the dissent, where, where they come back to the fact that, hey, wait a minute, there will still be a trial on all these issues if, this, if, uh, if the claim's allowed to proceed. There's yeah. a sense, there's a sense both from the majority and the dissent that there's a, a sort of finality in determining these issues. In other words, like we are determining right now uh, whether or not these comments were accusing him, uh, Mr. Newfeld, of breaching the criminal code. We are determining right now whether it was fair comment. And I, I, I think, I, candidly, Justice Cote's dissent, I think it was strong. I think it could have been even stronger mm. if, she, if she had uh, qualified it with that statement. And certainly the majority, um, you know, one really gets the sense that they are that they are making definitive determinations in terms of whether the fair comment defense applies. Now, to be fair, the majority doesn't say that and, and they do you know, qualify the language, but still you, you walk away from it. And this is not unique to this case, by the way, it's, it's like this in many defamation anti-slap motions where you walk away from it saying, uh, you know, thinking, okay, I think the judge um, was basically stepping into the role of, of trial judge here. And they're not really saying, oh, maybe this case will have merit. They're saying, I think this case really does have merit. This is a good case. Or they're saying this is a terrible case. And, and they're not doing what the legislation tells them they need to do, which is just act as that initial screening yeah. mechanism. Final question. And when we think about Newfeld and we think about its impact on defamation law, how do you foresee the Newfeld decision impacting the future specifically of anti-slap cases. Justice Cote expressed a fear in her dissent that uh, the outcome of this case would restrict the availability of tort actions uh, for defamation and therefore have a chilling effect on free expression. Do you do you share that concern? I don't know. Um, people talk about chilling effects on both sides. And in this case, they did talk about it on both sides. You know, the, the idea is if you if you allow too many defamation cases, the chilling effect on freedom of expression. If you uh, allow too many anti-slap motions, uh, you know, first of all, it, it's uh, it's setting fire to someone's you know to reputations. To mm -hmm. use the opposite analogy, or maybe it's a chilling effect on freedom of speech the other way because people won't want to get involved in debates. I, I always, you know, take any of those comments with a grain of salt because mm -hmm. like like any comment about, oh, this will open the floodgates to litigation. We we never really know how things will play out. You're always you're always crystal balling it. Um, you know, that said, I, I do think what this case does that is negative is that it it injects some additional uncertainty. I think after the the uh, Pointis decision, which uh, I believe Justice Cote wrote that one, um, I felt there was a lot more certainty after many years of the Ontario Court of Appeal wrestling with the anti-slap provisions. And Pointis, I thought, really um, set out the law well. It, it really hewed closely to the text and explained what needs to be um, adduced at each stage of an action. And, and what I liked about it as someone who does both sides is that I, I thought it struck a balance, a nice balance between a plaintiff's right to continue with the action and a defendant's right to rely on this section to stop uh, mm -hmm. un unmeritorious claims. I'm a bit concerned that Hansman and Neufeld tips that balance too much in favor of, of uh, defendants on the one hand, and, and on the other just injects uncertainty in, into the analysis in terms of, you know, 
looking at the content of your speech now. And, you know, I, I think it has now opened the door for people in lots of different contexts to say, aside from the sort of uh, general nature of what I was doing, let's also look at specifically what I was saying. It's a good kind of thing that people should be saying, and you should protect uh, my speech more than more than other people's speech. And and you know, aside from the various uh, philosophical problems that raises, it also raises. Uh, you know, a, a rule of law problem. And maybe this is a, a good way to bring us back to where we started mm. because it puts a lot of discretion in the hands of motion judges to decide what is good content, what's not good content. Um, we, have, we have a lot of doctrine on what the core values animating freedom of expression are. They are, they are values that emerge from cases over not just the history of, of our country, but, you know, the British common law more generally. We mm -hmm. do not have anywhere close to approaching the same consensus when it comes to content. And to the extent there ever is a consensus, that consensus is ever changing. Yeah. And so we need to get away from any doctrine that looks at content and come back to, to the general idea of, of was this speech the sort of speech uh, that attracts the core principles animating freedom of expression? Well, Asher, thank you for this conversation. Lots to unpack here. And uh, this isn't the end of the conversation, of course, because uh, you mentioned, uh, I believe at the outset, Law and Freedom uh, is, is coming up, our national conference at the beginning of February. And you will be chairing a panel there uh, on defamation law. Uh, CPD accreditation is pending, but we do hope to get that uh, CPD accredited. So uh, for our listeners, if this conversation interested you, uh, you should definitely register to come to Law and Freedom to hear more. Asher is going to be leading a conversation on this with a panel of other defamation lawyers. Uh, and even if this doesn't interest you, come to Law and Freedom anyway. It's going to be a great time. We've got Justice Malcolm Rowe giving the keynote lecture on Saturday evening, and we're going to have lots of other uh, panels on a wide variety of topics. So it's definitely something you don't want to miss. But Asher, uh, thanks for joining us today, and we look forward to having you back on in due course. Thank you, Chris, and, th and thank you for all that you do with the Running Meat Society and very much looking forward to this conference. You always do a, an absolutely fantastic job with it, and I know this year will be as good as ever or better than ever. That's the hope. Thanks, Asher. Talk to you soon. Talk soon. Thanks for listening. Running Meat Radio is a program of the Running Meat Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Tony Bedell and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Follow us on social media for updates on upcoming events like our National Law and Freedom Conference, which will be taking place from February 2nd to 3rd in Toronto and in which Asher will be chairing a panel discussion on defamation law. Tickets are on sale now.